Welcome to the, it's the last Sunday of the year. 2020 is almost over, guys. <laughs> Not that necessarily 2021 is going to be much different, but here's to hoping. Here's to hoping. Uh, this, mo- this morning, we are going to jump back into the Gospel of Mark. Obviously, that's the passage that we read this morning. Um, we took four weeks for Advent. I hope you guys had an amazing Christmas, as good as possible, some time with family, some good food. Kids, did you guys get anything fun? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? Real quick, just so this is your time you can, like, shout something out. What was your favorite gift? A drone. What was that? A bike. That's a good gift. A tree? Train. Watch. Hex bug. Cool. Very fun. Very fun. Yeah. My kids. <laughs> um, all right. We're going to jump back into Mark. And hopefully there's no more technical issues. So we'll see how this goes. Mark is written for disciples. This is a, we've been saying this every, every week, it's a roadmap for disciples in a time when there's confusion, there's chaos. It's, there's, uh, Mark is a roadmap. It brings clarity in where we're to go and how we're to go, how to move forward as disciples following in the way of Jesus. One of the sort of overarching questions that we've been dealing with through this gospel is this question of who is Jesus? This morning, our passage, I think, directly deals with that question, uh, who is Jesus? Last month, it's a month ago at this point, we looked at the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. If you remember, the Jewish leaders had made the temple, this is Jesus' accusation, they had made the temple, which was supposed to be a place of prayer for all the nations, they had turned it into a den of thieves. And there were all sorts of sort of sketchy dealings being going on. And Jesus comes across this fig tree uh, that had the appearance of livelihood, appearance of activity. It looked like it was ready to bear fruit, um, but it wasn't. And he likens the fig tree to the whole temple system. It had the appearance of godliness, the appearance of fruit, but there was no fruit. There was no uh, evidence of the fruit of the Spirit being developed. And at this point, you would kind of expect, I mean, Jesus just went in and he like, he shut the whole system down for a minute. He disrupted the system. The religious leaders are out to get him. And you would kind of expect Jesus to go into hiding um, or at least like, you know, stay out of the temple. He just caused a big disruptance. Uh, but he doesn't. Instead, actually, Jesus goes right back into the city and into the temple. This is the third time in this sort of narrative sequence that Jesus goes, Mark says that Jesus goes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple. And then the next day, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple. This is the third time in that sequence that Jesus goes to the temple. And when he gets there, immediately he's confronted by the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. This is the ruling elite, the ruling class 
they confront Jesus and they ask him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you authority to do them? Clearly, clearly they're talking about what he did just previously. They're like, under what authority do you think you can come in here and disrupt the whole temple system? Who gave you this authority? You'll notice the leaders, they didn't question whether or not Jesus had authority. Clearly he had authority. They questioned where did he get this authority? Why does he assume he can come in there and disrupt the whole system? They knew full well that Jesus had some sort of authority. But they wanted to know where it came from, where Jesus thought it came from. We initially encountered the authority of Jesus back in Mark 1. When Jesus was teaching in the synagogues, and the crowds, remember, were astonished because Jesus taught, quote, as one who had authority. Later, we see Jesus casting out demons, which means Jesus had authority over the demonic powers. We saw through this gospel so far that Jesus had authority to heal people. In Mark 2, we saw that Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sin. Mark 3, we saw that Jesus had authority over Satan himself when he talks about binding the strong man. Mark 4, we saw that Jesus has authority over the natural forces. Remember, he calmed the storm. Over and over again, Jesus is showing that he has all authority, that he has all things in subjection to him. And this must have been, for these religious elite, these, these political forces, this must have been kind of disconcerting uh, because in all of these incidences, these are things, Jesus is saying or doing things that only God can say or do. Such authority can only come from God. And yet Jesus seems to possess that kind of authority. And so they ask, who gave you this authority? They wanted Jesus to attribute his authority to God because then they could charge him with blasphemy and they could arrest him on the spot. But what Jesus does is... is Kind of tricky here. He answers their question with a question. And at first it seems a little odd. Jesus says, what was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Kind of seems like an odd question, right? They're asking Jesus, like, what makes you think you have authority to shut down the temple? What makes you think you have authority to do these things? And Jesus says, tell me about the baptism of John. Was that from God or was that from man? Seems like an odd question. What does the baptism of John have to do with the authority of Jesus? 
It's actually at the baptism of John, when Jesus is baptized, that we see from where Jesus gets his authority. You remember back in Mark 1, Jesus comes to the Jordan River to be baptized, and in verse 10, it says that when Jesus comes up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven saying, you are my beloved son, and with you I am well pleased. The Jewish leaders, they could discredit the baptism of Jesus by saying that John's baptism was simply from man or something that John invented. But then they'd be in trouble with the thousands upon thousands of people who came to John to be baptized, believing that he was a prophet. Or the Jewish leaders, and they wanted the crowds on their side. They wanted the crowds on their side, and if they were going to get rid of Jesus, they needed the crowds. Now, on the other hand, though, the Jewish leaders, uh, if they said that John's baptism was from heaven, that this, this is something from God, then Jesus would want to know why they didn't believe, why they didn't go to be baptized. Jesus puts them in a bit of a, a no-win situation. There's no way out of this, no way for them to come out of this conversation with their dignity still intact. So the religious leaders come together. They discuss sort of the implications of this question, like, okay, if we re respond this way, it's going to say, he's going to say this. If we respond this way, he's going to say this. A little bit of political maneuvering here. And they decide that the only way to answer this question is to say, we don't know. It's kind of a cop-out, to be honest. They had an opinion. They just didn't want to admit it. Because it will either mean obedience to the authority of Jesus or an opposition to the majority of the people. Jewish leaders here are confronted with the authority of Jesus. They know, they had to have known where it came from. Only God can do the sort of things Jesus was doing. But they were refusing to acknowledge it. There was open divine confirmation of Jesus' authority at his baptism. They disregarded it. They knew about Jesus. They knew about all the things that he'd been doing in his ministry leading up to this point that point to his divinity. But they didn't want it to be true because it would mean an entire upheaval of their way of life. What Jesus did in the temple means everything that they knew and believed and practiced, everything they lived for, was about to change. And so they say, we don't know. It's a total political move. <laughs> it's all they can muster up so as to not bend a knee to King Jesus. So Jesus responds, okay. Neither then will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus is unwilling. This is, this is 
Good. Jesus is unwilling to commit himself to those who are unwilling to commit to him. And then Jesus tells this parable, the parable of the tenants. It's a story of this landowner who leases out his land to tenant farmers to work in his absence. And at the harvest season, he sends servants to collect some produce. He was the landowner, so after all, I mean, like, he was due, he was entitled to a portion of the harvest. So the landowner sends servants to collect his portion. And it says that they took the servants and, and beat him and sent them away empty-handed. Other servants are then sent, receiving the same or worse treatment. Some are beaten, and some they killed. Could you imagine a landlord sending, like, hey, send me, send me my, my rent. Send me what's due. And then instead, you, you beat the messenger, and then you kill the messenger. That's the story here. As a last resort, the landlord sends his son... He says, surely his son will command some respect. The son would go with the father's authority to the father's property and claim the father's due. If the tenants reject the authority of the son, they would then be rejecting the authority of the father, the landlord himself. Sure enough, no longer content with just the landlord's produce, they want his land. So the tenants go after the whole property and they think to themselves, if we kill the son, then we will become the heirs and the property will be ours. So they kill the son and they throw him over the vineyard, throw him out of the vineyard. At this point, the landlord intervenes decisively, to say the least. He destroys the tenants and then leases the property to others more deserving. So what's the point of this parable? How does this all tie together to the religious leaders questioning Jesus' authority? There are so many hyperlinks in this story to other places in Scripture, but definitely Jesus is pointing back to this passage in Isaiah chapter 5. For sure, the religious leaders would have immediately recognized the elements of this story as a tie back to Isaiah 5. We're going to read this, Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 through 7. If you have your Bibles, you can turn there. Actually, I didn't send it to get it on the screen, so you can turn there. Isaiah chapter 5, 1 through 7. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it. He hewn out a wine vat in it, and he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. 
O now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem, O men of Ju Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will I will tell you what I will do in my vineyard. I will remove its hedges, and it shall be devoured. I will bring down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed. And barriers and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, and behold, bloodshed for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. Do you see, do you see the similarities here in this story? Very, like the elements of like the watchtower, the, the hewn, the, the hedge, the fence around the garden. Jesus is trying to point, he's you, using this to point them back to the story. And it was a common understanding that this vineyard, this planting was Israel. This was God's people. Honestly, they probably would have thought when they heard this initially that the tenants that were there were Rome until they, you know, Rome was sort of in charge and then ultimately, they were looking for the, the landowner to come back. But if you actually, they listened to it, they got a different picture. So God gives them good laws. He brings them into a good land. He leases them his, his vineyard to good tenants, the Jewish leaders, who were supposed to look after the vineyard so that it would yield a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. God had given them everything they needed to be fruitful, but the Jewish leaders failed in their assignment. So God sent prophets to them. Hebrews 1.1 says, Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But just like the servants in the parable, the Jewish leaders mistreated the prophets of God. Nehemiah 9.6 says, Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn back, turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. Jeremiah 22 says, tells us that Jeremiah was beaten and put in stocks. Tradition tells us Isaiah was sawn in two. Second Chronicles 24:21 says that they stoned Zechariah to death in the court of the temple. Most recently, John the Baptist was just beheaded. Jesus himself in Matthew 23:37 says, "O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it." The Jewish leaders had definitely rebelled against God, the rightful owner of the vineyard. They took the good things that God had made 
They took the good things that God had made and made them the ultimate thing, thus making them bad things. They took what God's, what was God's and said it was theirs. And at last, God the Father would send, get this, his beloved son with authority to claim what was rightfully his and to fix all things. God himself became flesh. This is what we just celebrated. He took on flesh, dwelt among us, but he was not believed. John 1 verse 11 says, He came to his own and his people did not receive him. He's the beloved son in this parable. If the Jewish leaders reject the son of God... They, would, they were ultimately rejecting the one who sent them, the father, the landowner. But they do worse than that. The Jewish leaders would take the son of God and they would kill him so that they, they could have the vineyard for themselves. And it's here we see what Romans chapter 11, 22 says, the kindness and the severity of God. We see the kindness of God towards his people and sending the prophets and sending over and over and over again, reaching out, trying to win his people, and then ultimately sending his son. This is the kindness of God. We cannot comprehend this kind of love. He's way, way more patient and loving than we would be. We would have brought the full force of the law, defended our land rights with maximum force to be honest. But God is gracious and long-suffering. He's not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. We see the severity of God, though, expressed in verse 9 here. What will the, owners, what will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. It's easy, we like to talk about the kindness of God. We don't necessarily like to talk about the severity of God, but yet to fully understand who God is, we must, we must talk about both sides of that. Acts chapter 4, 12 says that there is salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men in which we, one must be saved. So to reinforce this point, I think in a, in a beautiful way, tying this whole last section together, Jesus quotes from Psalms 118, verse 22 and 23. Sort of, it's bracketing this whole section. Remember when Jesus came into Jerusalem, the triumphant entry, this is the, the, uh, the, the Palm Sunday passage, remember? They're, they're, they shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting when they say that, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They're quoting Psalms 118. And sort of bracketing this section, Jesus quotes another section from Psalm 118. He said, remember, remember that? Psalms 118. Verse 22, 23. The stone that the builders have rejected have become its cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our, in our eyes. We know that this is the Lord's doing. 
We know that this is the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. We know that his ways are perfect. He's a good father. He's a good shepherd. He has a plan, and this is his good will. Truth be told, we're no different than the wicked tenants in this parable. If we, if we try to place ourselves as like, where do we fit in this story? We're no different than the Jewish leaders. Jesus, what kind of, a, where do you get your authority? You can't tell me what to do. <laughs> Romans 8, 7 says, for the mind is set on the flesh for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. There is no part of our natural selves that desires to submit to the authority of Jesus. We are naturally at war with God from the moment of conception. What needs to happen and what Jesus accomplished for us is that there is a change of heart. Our hearts can be set towards him. We can know that we're wrong, we can know that he's in charge, but unless the Spirit transforms our hearts, we will not submit to his authority. And this was the case with the Jewish leaders. They knew that Jesus told this parable against them. They knew, like, oh, he's saying we're these tenants. They knew that they and their forefathers were the tenants. They knew that they were supposed to give God his due. They knew that they were indicted by this parable. They knew that they had treated, they and their forefathers, shamefully treated the prophets and the servants of God, beating some and killing others. They knew that they themselves were planning the greatest act of rebellion. They were going to kill God's beloved son. They knew all this, and yet they didn't repent. They needed the Spirit of God to transform their heart. I think what we're seeing here with sort of the crux of this story is an, it's an issue of authority. It's been an issue since Adam and Eve in the garden. We've, humanity has had this issue with authority. I think it's especially challenging for us as Americans. I don't think we like to submit to anyone. We, we, yeah, we're born out of uh, rebellion a little bit here. Maybe, that, maybe that's just me, but... <laughs> In reality, at least I, we don't like authority, but we don't have all authority. We tend to have an issue with those that do, but we don't have the authority. There is one who does have all authority, and in whom we can take comfort knowing that ultimately he's in charge of all things. Matthew 28, 18 just before Jesus is about to ascend to heaven, Jesus says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus has all authority given to him by his Father. He's died, he's risen from the dead, he's triumphed over sin and over death. 
The question is not whether or not Jesus has authority, because he does. The question is whether we will submit to his authority whether, or whether we will reject his authority. The reality is that we're naturally, we all naturally rebel. <laughs> we all want to be our own God. We want to do things our way under our authority. It's my way or the highway. We've taken the good things that God gives us and we've turned them into ultimate things. Therefore, making them bad things. Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus stood in our place as that son of God sent to his vineyard. Where we rebelled against God and sought autonomy for ourselves, Jesus came in. We stood, Jesus stood in our place. He willingly gave himself over to death, taking the judgment of God that was due us. This is the good news. It seems to me like in this time, sort of thinking through the climate that we live in, a lot of things kind of being stripped away, simplified, stripped back to bare essentials here. And I think this is the, the lingering question here is, do we, do we trust Jesus and his authority? Do we trust that he has all authority? Or do we need to control things and do things our way? Can we allow him to do things the way he wants to do them? even if it doesn't quite make sense to us. I think it's as though Jesus is saying, am I king over your finances? Am I king over your health? Am I king over your job, your family, your situation, your social time, how you spend your time? Is Jesus king over your life? Have you submitted to his authority? I think that's the, for me, the, the take home from this passage is just really meditating, thinking on Jesus' authority. He has all authority. He's in charge. <laughs> and that's the idea is that we would submit to his lordship and his leadership. We would allow him to have full authority over our lives, over our families, over our jobs, over our decisions how we live and act. I'll pray and we can close in some worship. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you that you have all authority. You are the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You are sovereign over it all. God, I ask that we would submit to your authority, that we would know your leadership, that we would follow your prompting and your leading. Jesus, we ask that you would have your way. Amen.